This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Welcome, everybody, to our bonus episode today to get caught up with investigative journalist Brian Ross. Now, Mr. Ross has done everything. He's been on NBC, ABC. He's now at the Law and Crime Network, Dan Abrams Network, focused on trials and analysis and investigation. Now, this is the interview that I was supposed to air on Monday. We redid it because the file didn't tape correctly. Uh, I'm really, really excited about this. This was, I'm actually glad we waited because today as I'm talking to you, and by the way, I'm not reading any kind of prompter or anything. I'm just, we just got off the phone and I'm just now doing this. The House, in an unprecedented maneuver, voted to impeach Donald Trump a second time for the situation at the Capitol, which we begin uh, with Mr. Ross talking about. Then we go into his career as a young reporter, some of the big stories he's covered, where he was on 9-11. But mostly this really kind of focuses on the situation today in Washington and what is going on in the moment that we're in. And it, it, it is not something that I would ordinarily air. I don't like getting political, but I also get accused of ignoring the moment. And we actually have an upcoming interview with a conservative figure later on that I will air. I'm just going to wait for the inauguration and things to blow over. I like to know what people think about things, and I like to know who people are and what informs them. It's kind of been the theme of this whole week with mysteries and investigations, and that extends to politics. I am not particularly a political person. I shoot straight down the middle, and I see things both ways. I have my opinions, but I try not to share them. But these are unprecedented times, and it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this unfolds. And this is a gentleman who's covered Washington, who's covered New York, who's covered crime for decades. And he's somebody who I absolutely love having on this program. And through this adventure of remaking this episode, I'm now fortunate to call an acquaintance and a friend. I'm really glad and honored to have him on this show to put this moment in history into context. Here now, with his perspective on current events and the biggest cases, our interview with investigative reporter Brian Ross. Investigative journalist Brian Ross, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of yours. You know that because we talked before. This is our second take of this uh, <laughs> interview. How are you, sir? I'm very well, and thanks for uh, doing it again. It was uh, good the first time, good uh, warm-up. Now we're ready to go. Well, you know, I was embarrassed to ask, but you reached out to me, and I thank you for that. And you were telling me, you know, you have experience of having to go back to people and go, oopsies, the tech didn't work out. And you started to tell the story. Yeah. I said, wait till we're on the air. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, sometimes you can't go back. Uh, for instance, I was covering the, the story of Sonny Francisi, who ran the Columbia Mafia family in New York. And his son got involved in the movie business, and we got a tip that Sonny was coming out of Sing Sing prison. So a crew from NBC News, where I was at the time, and I went up to Sing early in the morning, waiting until about 8 a.m. Out comes Sonny, tough mobster. There's his uh, son with a big Cadillac waiting for him. Cameraman and I jump out of the car to go get him. And the cameraman did what they call a double clutch. He turned it on, and he turned it off. So we had this great interview, which was never recorded. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
That's you can't ask you can't ask Sonny to do it again. No, no, you can't. No, you can't. And you know, especially in these unprecedented times, it's important to get the story and get it first and get it right. Now, now speaking of those big stories, we of course, when you were here, it was just five days after the Capitol siege was the first time we talked. We were going to kick off our week of of uh, investigative mystery, I call this mystery week, uh, of investigative episodes with your thoughts on the riot and the siege at the Capitol. Now they're impeaching the president. Now there's even investigation that some of the rioters were visitors to the Capitol the day before right. the day before it happened. That's some some House members. And Matt, yeah, Matt, that's the great mystery. Did they get inside information? Yeah. Were House members showing them around? Uh, did they know where to go? How did they find uh, Jim Clyburn's unmarked office on the third floor there? How was that done? Uh, were there members of the Capitol Hill police? Uh, were there members of the U.S. military who were helping organize what now appears to be a very serious insurrection that was put down? But uh, as we look more and more at the videos that come out every day, it's more and more astounding uh, that there was at least some organization behind it, uh, some organized efforts. If they were better organized, who knows how far they would have gone. Well, see, it didn't look like it at first because it looked like people just mobbed. It didn't look like there was any organization to it. But you're right. Those people that got in, uh, the letter from Congress, from the representatives, said they had uh, knowledge of the of the layout of the Capitol that they shouldn't have. Um, does this mount, in your opinion, or in what you're in using your history as a reporter, does this mount to something that a president should be impeached over? I think it does, to be honest. I've never seen anything like it. I don't think the country has. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's stunning. And certainly uh, there are Republicans now who have uh, joined that uh, crowd that feel he should be impeached. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, I think what happened there is, you know, this will be in the history books. It's, we live in a time where we're, history is unfortunately being made on a very dark day in America mm -hmm. when a, a mob tried to stop the certification of the presidential election. Uh, and you know, members of Congress are now saying how, how scared they felt. They, they thought their lives were at danger. And really, when sometimes it was matters of seconds or half minutes uh, that separated uh, the members of Congress from, from this mob. And we saw the pictures now that are coming. At first, you know, we saw sort of the wide shot, lots of people on the Capitol steps, like, all right, I get that. And now we're seeing some of the individual uh, uh, cell phone videos that were taken, you know, the beating and the uh, using the American flag to beat police officers. Uh, it was just stunning to me. Uh, it's part of history. And certainly the word from the FBI and the U.S. attorney in, in Washington now indicate they are going full bore here and they plan to bring charges involving sedition, conspiracy. Uh, there's a lot more to come from this story, obviously. I really think I really think so as well. And one of the questions I asked you, you were talking with lawyers about, uh, and you said you didn't think so, but I'm seeing reports now, they can continue with the impeachment trial um, yep. once he leaves office, the goal being to prevent him from holding any government office ever exactly. again do you think right. they will I, I was not yeah i think they will it appears that uh senator mitch mcconnell who is still the leader of the senate until uh january 20th when he will probably step down because it'll be chuck schumer then has indicated there'll be no trial until after the inauguration 
But uh, I was surprised to learn, but it's the case that they can go ahead and hold the proceeding if only to make sure that he's convicted and banned from future office. And as long as they're at it, what about his generous pension? What about the million dollars a year in travel money? Uh, what about the uh, round-the-clock uh, for life uh, Secret Service protection? Is that something that he deserves? Well, I'll answer you that. That uh, I think so, and I'll, I'll t- at least the Secret Service protection, because he mm-hmm. still does have classified information, and it would be a national right. security risk if, if he were not protected and he were vulnerable to attack. Um, I do That's think a good point. he needs to be protected as an ex-president, but I think some of the... Um, I think you might see some of those perks go away. But let's stop talking about uh, Donald Trump and let's talk about Brian Ross. Your career began many, many years ago in Miami. Is that correct? What made you want to become? Actually, uh, actually in Iowa. I started, Iowa. Uh, yeah. And you go back before that, when I was a high school kid, I was doing a TV sports show in uh, Chicago on oh, wow. some little watched UHA station. But it kind of launched me. It got into my blood then. And I just enjoyed uh, doing stories that nobody had heard about mm-hmm. and kind of breaking the news. And I think that's in the gut of so many uh, journalists, the ones who really you know, care and have a passion for what they do. And there's, there's a kind of thrill about uh, breaking a story. What kind of crime, I didn't think about this last time, what kind of crime do you enjoy covering the most? What kind of crime really gets underneath and you're like, I want to, I need to pursue this story uh, to its just end. I think what I really uh, get the most uh, sort of satisfaction is covering stories involving powerful people uh, breaking the laws for greed or other purposes, uh, big corporations, uh, well-known politicians. Uh, that to me is, is worthy of effort. You know, I, I care less about the a dog catcher, you know, uh, breaking a law or something. I, I care about the, the big time crimes that uh, all too often don't get much coverage and all too often c- can be treated with a sort of a kid gloves approach by uh, law enforcement. And I don't think that should be. I think that those kind of crimes deserve our full attention. And, uh, you know, those people involved you know, deserve uh, as much time behind the bars as they can get. Exactly. I, I agree with you. You know, it's always troubled me, the double-edged sword, some murders get coverage because there's a sensationalist and, dare we say, sexy element to that particular heinous crime, a, a, an attractiveness to how heinous it is. But other equally perplexing cases don't uh, get that coverage because they're not made for TV. How do you fight that battle as a journalist? Uh, you know, it's uh, as they say, if you can make the important interesting or the interesting, important, you always have a job in TV news, and that's sort of the, the goal. And uh, you've got to sort of you know, make it a bigger story sometimes to, to fight that. And, um, you know, yes, we all, the, you know, if it's the murder of uh, John Lennon, that's a big story because it's a celebrity. But sometimes the ones we don't hear about can be just as telling, in part because, you know, what drove a person to kill another person? That's That, to me, is always fascinating. What's behind that? You see... You know, ugly child custody cases, you know, and yes, the murder took place. But what was going on in the courts that made this person so desperate to take this act? And so I enjoy kind of digging into the motivation Mm -hmm. uh, behind behind the crime. Well, digging into motivation, one of your first big, uh, big stories was you covered a lot of organized crime in the early days of your national career. How is organized crime? Not that you cover it so much now. 
how has it changed over the years? And, and what did you see in those sort of glory days that we see now in all the documentaries and books? Well, we had a very well-entrenched and powerful organized crime in La Casa Nostra, the mafia that, you know, we've all seen The Godfather, but uh, there's a lot of truth in that. They had such incredible power over, and the real power came from control of labor unions, so they could control uh, economies that way by either smiling favorably on contractors who needed the unions or not. And they also controlled members of the the government and judges. Mm -hmm. And so that was the real key, I thought, to their power. And frankly, it was the work of um, Rudy Giuliani when he was the uh, U.S. attorney in New York that put the commission, as they called it, on trial and really broke the back of the mafia in ways that had never been done before. And, you know, as, as somebody who got to know Giuliani during those days, of course, I'm still cannot figure out what happened to him today. Well, that was going to be my next question. What happened? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I've seen lots of people where they, you know, they've lost their job, and uh, he's had a couple of divorces, so he's probably got financial issues, and he's he wants to be relevant. You know, for people who are in public life and everyone has an ego, relevance is probably the most important piece of capital they can get. And you know, I think he made himself, I guess, relevant by taking on. Uh, the cause of Donald Trump, but I don't think he did himself any favors in terms of his credibility. You know, it's interesting. I, the the investigative journalist who focuses on crime, our conversation keeps coming back to Washington, D.C. Have they in many ways, this is probably broad strokes here, but have they in many ways made what used to be done in organized crime legal with lobbying? Not that there's, I mean, there's always going to be lobbies, <laughs> nothing against that, but it seems like politicians are still largely bought and sold. We just have a different name for it. Well, there's a way. There's a way. Yes, there's a, as you say, that is, is a you know a fee can be a legal bribe in a way, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, campaign contribution. Uh, you know that door is so wide open, and such, in my view, corruption involving that with huge amounts of money going to uh, people running for office. And you look into it, you're like, why do they have to? Well, that's the way the system works. If they run for office, they've got to buy TV commercials, radio commercials. Those are expensive, so they need money to stay in jobs, stay in the power. And, um, you know, it, it, there is a corruption there that is insidious that continues to this day. You know, the, the efforts to reform campaign spending just fallen flat. No one really pays much attention to it. But that's how you – if you can buy influence, uh, you want to call it – a contribution or a bribe, I don't know. They're, it's the same impact. Really, it is. You know, one other thing before we get to your new network, Law and Crime, I didn't talk to you about this, but we were talking a little bit on email. You covered 9-11, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were in New York when the towers fell. I was. <sighs> Definitely was. It, it gets... I, I, Go ahead. I, was, I had just arrived in the office, and... Um, you know, about 8.30 in the morning at the ABC offices on the Upper West Side. And uh, the local news came out and said, uh, a small plane has hit the uh, World Trade Center. I said, oh, God, what's that all about? It was a clear day. So, And then and then they came out and said, a second plane has not hit the World Trade Center. What's going on at the SAA Tower? And I said, well, these guys don't know what they're talking about. This is something else. And I'd say within 20 minutes uh, from sources I knew and others at ABC knew, we were pretty sure it was Al-Qaeda. And we later learned, of course, that they were 
the lights were all blinking red in terms of the warnings and being really ignored by the uh, the Bush White House. They had sort of turned a blind eye to this issue, and Richard Clark, who was the national security advisor, could not get them to pay any attention to it. And he resigned. He quit and said, you know, the government failed you, I failed you. And his, that testimony he gave before Congress. And I got to know him very well, and today he's a good friend, and, you know, he always talks about the warnings that are being missed. And that's the takeaway, of course, from 9-11, you know, and here we are talking about Washington again. But what were the warnings about uh, the people gathering on behalf of Donald Trump on uh, January 6th? Uh, seemed to have been a number of warnings that something uh, momentous, something violent was about to take place. Well, you, you hit on something that I, I don't know how often you've dealt with in your career, but it's it's conspiracy, right? We saw yep. conspiracy theories crop up around 9-11. We've seen conspiracy theories crop up around coronavirus, around the election. So let me put this to you in a very nuanced way, because frankly, uh, my background is actually in conservative media and and cable news. Uh, I'm not in conservative media anymore, but I'm watching some of these things like the video of the votes still going on when they, the counting still going on when they said they were going to shut down and the pulling the boxes out from under the table. And it just seems like one side was very dismissive of the accusations. One side was very conspiratorial about the accusations, speaking now about election fraud, which I think that Trump fueled those flames is how we ended up with the siege at the Capitol. Um, but there was nobody in the middle ground saying, hey, Let's examine this and completely, totally debunk it. There was dismissiveness and and demands, but there was no, hey, let's look at this, at least for what I saw. There was Rudy Giuliani screaming at a at a construction site <laughs> but, right. and commentators landscaping, right? Yeah. And commentators on liberal news saying there's no there there. What has happened to the investigative middle ground? Well, I think there were uh, efforts to sort of take a look at this, and I sure. ended up sort of feeling that the words of the Attorney General, William Barr, who was certainly you know, uh, a supporter of Donald Trump for much of his uh, reign as Attorney General, when he said there's no evidence of any uh, voter fraud that would have changed the outcome of the election, that for me was uh, enough because he, you know, he, if anything, you think would have sided on perhaps finding something. And he had the FBI and uh, U.S. attorneys around the country looking at it, and they had, you know, nada, nothing there. So that, for me, kind of closed it. But I think you raise a question about whether, uh, you know, has the press become so partisan that uh, you know, one side cannot possibly consider, you know, a, a different view than the conventional wisdom? And I've always thought that in Washington there is a kind of a pack mentality, and the conventional wisdom rules the day which is not good for investigative reporting. And I've always tried to fight that. And I know people that I know who do really good work, uh, you know, Mike Isikoff and Mark Hosenball and my colleague Rhonda Schwartz and, and others who you know, work hard, always try to look at uh, you know, what are we missing? What aren't we seeing here? And it can be hard because it's sort of the conventional wisdom is easy and it's comfortable to be in with the pack, but it's not always the best journalism. No, no, it's, it's not. And I think social media, we talked a little bit about this last time, has helped and hurt because there's numerous documentaries now of citizen journalists, citizen investigators, um, something called, oh, 
forgive my French, uh, Mr. Ross, but uh, a, ne- a Netflix documentary called Don't uh, Fuck With Cats uh, in- investigated uh, this murderer uh, named Luca Mignotti. It's, it's incredibly well done. And it was citizen journalists. So benefits and drawbacks. How has social media advanced your little uh, plot of journalism, the investigative journalism? Well, you know, the pluses and minuses, lots of lots of leads, lots of voices that were never heard before and now can be heard, uh, but it also gives voice to people that have uh, crazy ideas that, you know, don't really lead to much or end up being uh, you know, dry holes. You go after and it doesn't work out much, but that's just the nature of the beast. I'm in favor of more voices, not fewer voices. I like every kind of point of view to be heard. I'm interested in everything. I'm not really... I don't like it when they shut down people on, on Twitter. If, they do, if they're advocating violence, that's one thing. But uh, they shouldn't be shut down because they have alternative views. Well, let me ask you this, because it gets into a Section 230 thing, and, and I don't want to get too deep in the yeah. weeds on politics, but you have people who vehemently oppose Trump in Europe saying Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, all these places that have banned him now, have gone too far. What's your take as a journalist who wants to report on what is going on with our world leaders. What's your take on Twitter taking that action? Well, they say they did it because he finally violated you know, their guidelines. I thought he had been violating them all along, but to the extent that his words were fueling a, essentially an insurrection is the word, fueling violence, uh, you know, they, they have some obligation there. Uh, but you know, Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, let's put aside Donald Trump for the moment, but some of these uh, very violent uh, groups on both the right and the left, you know, have used Facebook and Twitter to message their people and communicate. And it's a tough call. You know, they, they Facebook and Twitter have sort of started by saying, well, we're not publishers. We're just a, a bulletin board. We'll just post things. But the fact is that that doesn't really work. They've got to take some responsibility. You mentioned Section 230, which essentially gives social media kind of a safe haven. They can't be sued for somebody's uh, statements that they post. But once they start to regulate and decide what they will or what they won't post, then maybe they can be. It's, it's, it's a tricky situation. And, it, you know, uh, it's the joy of social media. You can say anything, and then that's the problem. You can say anything. Yeah. Well, one place where you're saying things, very important things, is the Law and Crime Network. It's about three years old. I know a lot of lawyers who have done it because, again, being a TV booker, I, uh, and I've heard great things. Tell me a little bit about the program, the, uh, the twice-weekly program that you do for Law and Crime. Uh, Brian Ross Investigates is the name, no surprise there. Mm-hmm. And we try to do uh, stories that aren't being done elsewhere. We don't try to be... You know, we're not going to be uh, CNN or uh, Fox in terms of covering the breaking news, but we do try to get into issues that are you know, not being covered where we can make a difference and, and give voice. And uh, it's been a, a, a great experience for me and my partner, Rhonda Schwartz, uh, to do this show. Um, uh, this past week, we did a big uh, full show on uh, potential cancer-causing chemicals that are used to waterproof what's called the turnout gear for firefighters. Uh, you know, cancer is the number one cause of death for firefighters. And there are all kinds of things that, of course, they breathe in smoke and fumes. But this gear is uh, waterproof, which is essential for them, uh, with a chemical that was for years known to be a possible carcinogen. They changed it to a different formulation, but it's a big issue. So anyway, that's the kind of story that I like to get into 
that hasn't received much attention. We try to get in there and, and try to cause uh, change if we can. Well, I love that. I love watching your show on long crime. I've uh, I've always enjoyed watching you, and, and I don't say that to to be a fan. I mean, you've always been fair, balanced, clear on what you're reporting across all of the networks you've been on. You've had and inc- you had and continue to have an incredible career. But I have to ask one thing to end this. Is a deep, sultry, uh, melodic voice a prerequisite to be a true crime broadcaster? Because you're definitely in that it, category. <laughs> it, it, let me say this. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Ross, this was a pleasure uh, beyond proportions. I love your perspective on everything from the politics to crime investigations and to 9-11. Thank you very much, sir. I really appreciate it. Matt, thanks for having me on. It was a great honor to be with you. Thanks much. Brian, thank you very much for reaching out to me and asking to reschedule. I was going to leave it alone and just do the rest of the week, and but you said, no, let's do it. You've dealt, like you said in the interview, you've dealt with glitches many times, and your grace, even as we experienced issues today on the phone with my new board, <laughs> I said, are you bad luck? And, and you're not. You're actually good luck, and, and I appreciate it. And you give quite a great perspective. Law and Crime Network, Brian Ross Investigates. Check it out. You will see some investigations on some stories that other places just won't. Juiced will not share. That is it for us today on Talk for Two. Remember, you can always find new episodes at talkfor2.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talk for Two. Follow us on Instagram at Talk for Two Pod. TikTok at Talk for Two. Reach out to me at T A L K F O R T W O C A S T at gmail.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, minding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>